I'd like to take a minute of your time to let you know what you can do to help Recovery Radio continue its mission as a premier provider of free ongoing support to recovering people worldwide. Recently, our expenses have skyrocketed. The increase is powered by our increasing bandwidth and storage needs caused by the growing popularity of our programs. This is actually a good problem to have as it shows that we are filling a need as we continue our mission to serve the recovery community. However, even good problems are problems that need resolutions and this is where you come in. Recovery Radio has started a fundraiser to help defray our additional costs. Please surf on over to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. Give whatever amount you can and rest assured your donation will be used to keep Recovery Radio on air and on mission. Please become part of the solution and help us support the recovery community. Thank you. And I'd like to thank everybody on the, on the um, committee and all of the speakers I heard tonight. I mean, not tonight, but this weekend. Uh, man, this has been a good convention. Round up our convention. And right after this, I have to be here with the retired truckers convention. And some of those guys knew me when I was drinking, and some don't. I um, grew up in um, Detroit in a project in the east side of town, and um, some gangs around there, and I joined a gang, and... uh, about 14 or 15 years old and uh, we were a real uh, end breaking and entering and uh, we got caught and uh, my buddy is a year older than I am he had just turned 17 and joined the Marine Corps and I just turned 16 in November and uh, I said well I'll join the army. So I went down to to the center there in Detroit, and I was trying to think of the name where I joined up. My memory is gone, completely gone. And uh, due to something that happened to me after I was sober, and I'll tell you about it a little later on. So I joined the army, and I didn't think they'd take me. So they did. And the troop train was leaving that night. Now, I grew up in this Detroit, and I grew up around a lot of black people, which didn't bother me. I just thought, you know, this is this normal situation for me. And um, so the guy said, well, you have to have your mother sign. So I passed the physical, just squeaked by. I weighed 112 pounds and five feet four. I went outside, called my sister up and told her I joined the Army, and signed my mom's name, came back in and put me on a troop train that night. 
Now here I was, a hoodlum, 112 pounds, with a DA sleeve rolled up with a pack of cigarettes. Anybody ever see Fonzie? <laughs> That's what I look like. Papa, old gold cigarettes. And I went in there, and I'm thinking I'm bad. Now, the reason I think I'm bad, because I have five brothers that were bad. And if I said my last name was Morrison, people just left me alone in that neighborhood. Don't hit him. Don't hurt him. His brother's Frank. Don't hurt him or don't leave him alone. This, so this is where I grew up in a family that was the most disoriented family I've ever seen until I got sober. And I made a 12-step call on a person who was just like our family. I'm the baby of 15. And um, so mom's baby's in the army. I get off the troop train, and this sergeant said something to me. I said, well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and, uh, my first day in the army, I was uh, in a pair of emergency fatigues that they gave me to clean the mess hall ceiling cracks with a toothbrush. Now, the other thing that happened on that troop train, I told you, I, you know, grew up in Detroit, east side, went in the army with two fellows that were black and both named Brown. So I'm in there and everybody's calling these black people Brown. I get off this thing in Missouri and I thought in the army you call black people brown. I said, Brown, come here. This guy's name was not Brown. So after an altercation with the junior Cassius Clay, or Muhammad Ali now, I learned that you don't just call people that. And the fact is, I began to call some of them sir. So, now, in that PX, they gave me a card that said Regular Army, which was green. At that time, people were coming into service for six months and then serving a four-year reserve status. If you had a green card in the PX, you could, were considered 18 because there wasn't many 16-year-olds 16 16 in the service then. So I started drinking in the PX, and of course we go through this. And now you can remember, I had this beautiful hair, and they give me a white wall haircut. I mean, how do you like it? Oh, I like it. Boom! And of course you're just a brush cut. And about business. So they give me all this stuff, and I fell out one day, and I um, start drinking with older guys, and. Um, end up kind of in trouble but made it through basic training. Now during this basic training they gave me the same equipment that they gave the big guys. Now we would go on runs and I'd have a full field pack of helmet and then one boots, Mickey Mouse boots and all the other crap that we had to go 
to be in Cold War, not Cold War, meaning Cold War like Russia, I mean like snow troops. Pair of goddamn skis. Kid me Detroit never seen skis. And it's all this stuff they're going to start training us to be ski troops. And all of a sudden I'm running and I found out that in the Army, that if I get you right out of the Army real quick, that I was drinking a lot and these guys I hung around with liked me and felt sorry for me. So every time I stumbled, they had picked me up by my cartridge belt and carried me with them. So I made it through basic training. And um, got in a little trouble down in the city of um, St. Louis and different places like that. And I was trying to think of the name of the town out of Fort Leonard. But ended up and come home, I leave. Start, um, I was dating Mary before we left. Just a little bit. You know, I was turned on to her by her girlfriend. And what I did, she didn't know about it for a long time. I'd give her the flat tire. She was a girl that worked in a five and dime store. Five and ten cent store. Anyway, I go back and end up in Fort Lee, Virginia as a parachute packer. Ended up going that, came back, didn't want to do that. And uh, they changed my mess as a Fort Hood, Texas. And I liked that job. They got to get me in a tank. And I liked that. And I liked driving the truck. Now, that's what I ended up doing truck the truck. And I want to get you into where after that we got out and got married. I come home from being in Europe. 23 months. I changed. I went from 112 pounds to 170 the most ever weighed in my life. And I come home and she quit writing me letters. And um, I got a gear John. Everybody kind of got a gear John. So it was just a normal thing. And I come home and uh, my brothers were all standing around and at this house. I was staying at my brother's house. I put my duffel bag down on the floor. My brother says, are you going to marry Mary? I said, I ain't marrying nobody. I'm thinking about re it. Well, whatever. I'm staying home. I'm home one day. I want to go see my buddies. And she shows up. And I told my brother, if you want someone to marry Mary, you marry Mary, because I'm not getting married. <laughs> and uh, she had cleaned out my duffel bag of my girlfriend's pictures. And threw them away. And some of them were from the French Riviera. Now, them were not. <laughs> so that started our marriage. And I started... <laughs> Six days later, my duffel bag was still sitting over there, and we were married. <laughs> Forty-three years ago. So I uh, went to work. My dad was in Forest, went to work. And now here I come out of the 7th Army NCO Academy. I was an instructor. I had these epaulets on that said king, and I could tell a lieutenant, captain, or a colonel what to do. I lived in the bachelor's officer's quarters. I had a maid 
this is the army that I love. I didn't do nothing but tell these people what to do. And so I had to end up at God I told you about getting married and um, start drinking. And um, her friends moved to California. I we shortly after moved to California. Me and him got drinking. He turned to be out to be a reverend, and uh, that ended my drinking buddy. So I start driving trucks in um, 1962. Got out there and um, I um, drank a little bit because that was the thing to do. I was with the hairy arm truck drivers, and if you didn't drink, you were, you know, they just didn't trust you. Something, I don't know. I, I started drinking with them, I'd get off, come in off a run, and uh, drink. If I laid over someplace, I'd drink. And I was having trouble, never got a drunk driving ticket, hit a couple cars one time, not with a truck, with my own car. And, um, this went on, and she was on me about drinking a little bit then, but not bad. It was okay to drink with some people and not okay to drink with others. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is it took me a long time to get here in Illinois. <laughs> so I end up getting some drunk driving tickets because I am a very belligerent person. And if the cops stopped me, I said, just take me to jail. In fact, this how smart I was. They had this New Year's Eve and Christmas drunk driving stops, checks. I had pulled in there to prove I could pass the sobriety test <laughs> and went to jail. So, and, um... Things got worse. When Mary and I bought five houses, I threw my drinking. We lost them. I wouldn't go to work. Got called go to work. Wouldn't go to work. And it got, I got so bad, I told you I was in that NCO Academy. And it was called the Little West Point of USAR. Meaning you looked like a penguin walking around in uniform. Kind of just like West Point in the United States. And we taught these German troops, the French troops, the and the different people to be uh, a non-commissioned officer's training academy, but officers went to it also. So I um, got in those driving trucks, and I, you know, just kind of like a fit. And uh, I, we were having a good time. I was making a lot of money, and I was riding for a major trucking company, and I, I just, just loved it. And uh, like I say, and then all of a sudden, drinking took me to where I want, didn't want to go. And uh, I quit that job. I was drinking over in Frank's Bar on Telegraph in Washington. And I was there the night that a guy rode his horse into the bar and it fell through the wood floor. And the horse was stuck in the floor. And... Uh, the reason I say that because one of the guys I hung around with, named Alex McKenzie, was there also. And he said he never, th he never met anybody that ever seen that. 
I seen it. They were having a hell of a time getting that horse out of that floor. So, now then, I like drinking at Frank Sundown on Washington Boulevard, 7th Street, and it was not because of the book that we drink, seek to go our companions. I did. I had a lot of money, and I was down on, on uh, 7th Street, Alameda, Maine, and all through there, drinking, and got in the near new car and drove away. And then people were living in drugs. I did feel superior. And didn't know that at the time that I was going through parts of the alcoholic goes through to get here. So I go in and I tell this trucking company, I want my chippy check. Now my chippy check doesn't mean what you think. It means that for every safe driving mile you go per month, you get a check. So we drove a lot of miles and we got one-tenth of a mil of a penny for safe driving award. So I took the chippy check. He said, oh, if you have to you have to quit for us to get your regular payroll check because you're out of Oakland. Our payroll's out of Oakland. And I was driving for a company called Pacific Intermountain Express. That was the company that when I was a kid in Detroit, I wanted to drive for. I made it to my destination. And he said, you have to put down the reason you want to quit. I said, simple. Trucks are red. That's the color they are. Quit, go over there, get drunk, come back. It was just a chaos for a long time. I drove for LA Seattle PIE, and I, the last major trucking company was consolidated, and I just retired from them before they went broke. And my buddies are going to be here. And I should add that, and just in case my buddy Carl, my sleeper cab partner and operator at the company, Carl, I think it looks like there's four or five thousand people here. And some are, they got, they're putting their hands up to the ear and hearing me better. That's for Carl. So I, I end up and I find out that, you know, the drinking, I lost jobs, wouldn't go to work. If the truck wasn't clean enough, I wouldn't drive it. If it wasn't a front row truck, in fact, there was a guy I met in the casino. In Buffalo, New York, in a snowstorm, I got out there and started cleaning my truck. Anything. So he said he did the same thing. And I said, I hope he's here tonight. And met him in the casino the night before last. And uh, I, I just can't believe some of the stuff I've done. And it's just so stupid. I did steal a truck once. And then get caught. And we're just going to leave that up there. Um, it was kind of a repossession deal. And uh, we just had fun. And, and um, I did that. And then... I got the job that all alcoholics love. I hold Budweiser beer. <laughs> and the lady before was talking about going to Woodstock. The Kenworth that would link to Woodstock was the truck I drove. And Bob Crosby took it there. And the guy I drove for was a guy named Frank Albert Sinatra. Truck said FAS on the side. They still haul Budweiser beer in Las Vegas. 
So I quit that job. I think that some of the stuff I've done is just stupid and not knowing that the back of it was alcohol. That I would do this. Only me. So I'll get into I would get all through with that and I bought my own truck. And now I was sober in AA. Now I didn't like this AA. I thought it was for wimps. And I thought this the worst thing I ever did was ask Fred B to be my sponsor. I have never this guy saved my life. But when I did it, I didn't know this would happen. And a guy named Byron W., Marion W., Tommy Carrington, Chuck C., Norm Alpe, whole bunch of people in the Canyon Club and down from Laguna Beach that way were wondering what happened to me. Now, I think I have about 12 minutes left. I left on this trip. My truck was parked in Alpine. And a Hispanic fellow came up and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to New York. And he said, I know, I think about it, going to Chelsea, Massachusetts. He said, I'd like to learn to drive. I said, come here at midnight, I'm leaving. So me and him got in his Peterbilt. And we left his application over. He said, I want to learn how to drive across country. Now, I don't know this. We started, and he does okay, pretty decent. And uh, we go down to Gallus and Low Produce and head up to Chelsea, Mass. Well, I don't know this, that he can't read English. Now, I'm just driving along, and I see, ready to change? He said, yeah, ready to change. I go to bed in a sleeper, and I wake up. And I kept looking. I said, there's something wrong with the damn signs. I could see the silver part, but I couldn't see the part that said the speed limit. I got up and we had crossed over in Ohio on a crossover in construction zone, and he didn't see the crossover to return to the right side. So I'm opposing traffic with a peer bill, and uh, in there, I'm uh, standing on the doghouse, squeezing this guy by the neck. Thank God, I mean, and just swearing, jumping up and down, looked like a monkey's right. And uh, I didn't know he couldn't read English. He could read the international signs, but he couldn't read English. So we're going along. I settled down on that side. We're almost to Youngstown, Ohio. And a valve come loose. And number two head. Went through my turbo, came back in, shut down all three heads. They towed me into the Youngstown garage, and uh, they took my reefer, a brand new reefer, and put it in the parking lot of the 76 truck stop in Youngstown, Ohio. And I had to start carrying fuel and feed this thing. The broker wanted to know where I was. Uh, I told him I was broke down, lost three heads in the turbo. And they're going to put it on. Well, $4,000 later, we get out of there. But what happened to me is I wanted to make a meeting. I was a newcomer. I called the answering service in Youngstown, Ohio. I said, my name is Dick. I'm from the L.A. area. Then I make a meeting. They gave me the phone number of a guy that's over 25 years. I call him up, and they tell him I'm Dick from L.A. 
area. I didn't want to say Upland. It wasn't worth that. He said, man, I can't help you. I start drinking today and I'm up. I said, screw this guy, AA. So I don't know what to do. I called Byron W. Because my sponsor's on vacation. Say, Byron, my truck is... I blew up my truck. I'm feeding this unit diesel walking way back in the back of the truck stop. He told me, don't get too tired, don't get too hungry, and calling me in the morning. I said, yes, sir. I got over there in this Youngstown, Ohio, stocking shop, and they had run my truck into the wall. Now, this truck had broken windshields. The sun visor was bent. It was jacked over, cab over. My stacks were out like this. Now, I told you how panicked I was. From that day on, that truck never got fixed. I called him Peter Ben. And, uh, <laughs> it's a resentment. Can't you understand resentments? You don't fix resentments. You just keep them till they can't drive you nuts, and then you get rid of them. I call up Byron. I said, Byron, my truck's a wreck. These people won't take care of me. I got California on the door. I'm getting the green leaning. What do you want me to do? He said, go to a meeting. Don't take the first drink. Call me in the morning. So I call an AA attorney. And I tell him where I'm at. He said, look, I have to go out of town, but my friend could take care of you. The AA guy calls me back in the motel room and the truck stopped and says, Dick, we can't help you out because we represent that company. <laughs> I called Byron up. I said, Byron, let me tell you what's happening. I said, I don't feel like a damn drink. I feel like killing. I don't have a gun. What do you want me to do? I mean, tell me something. You're a guru, man. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too tired. Don't take the first drink and call me in the morning. Now then, this truck was hit from another truck that come loose under power, smashed my truck in the wall, and it knocked out my rear gears. Now I have a rear end trouble in my truck. I'm going down the interstate, and the truck won't go up the hill. Oh, man. The broker's calling me, Navajo's calling me, where are you at? What's the matter? What the hell's happening? I get in to Chelsea, Massachusetts, to George's dock. I get a claim on my load of letters. Four grand. Talk to Mary. Tell her what's going on. Paid $4,000 to get that truck out of the shop in Youngstown, Ohio. So now I'm $8,000 dead in the hole. And uh called Byron. I'm Byron got a claim. My truck screwed up. My rear end. Navajo sent another truck to pull the load. They pulled my load in. I limped in with an empty trailer. Went and picked up my loaded trailer. He said, don't get too tired. Don't get too hungry. Go to a meeting. Don't take the first drink and call me in the morning. Now, we're living upstairs in Somerville above a bar. And Joe, who can't read, says, I wonder when you're going to take a drink. 
I said, Joe, I'm going to tell you in English and Spanish. I'm going to squeeze you out the neck. I don't want to hear about no drink. I just want to be... I go to a meeting. I call up central office. <laughs> they give me a meeting of a guy that just got hurt in a hard hat accident in the bay. He said, can you drive a pickup? I said, yeah. He said, come up here. You can drive me to a meeting. I take you know, there's a lot of money going on here, and I'm going broke quickly. I go up there, and I help John out of his house in Chelsea, Mass. And we're going over to a big meeting at a church in Revere Beach. I think it was called Revere Beach around Somerville. I get him in the pickup. He sits over there. I prop up his crutches, and he falls over on my lap. My first thought was, now I picked up a gay lady. Just say today. I go along with this crap and I get back in. I walk in this place and they say, Are you the trucker from Los Angeles? Say, yeah. You're the speaker. I said, yeah, look at I, I don't want to say nothing. So we get right back, help John. And now this is the thing that happens. This lady don't know about Alan, and I turn her on Mary, and she says, Miss Alan lives with me. And uh, she calls up, and her and Mary become phone friends over Alan. Me and John, I give him my one-year pen. I'm sober 28 and a half years. I give him my one-year pen. I come put it on your tongue, and if it melts, I'll buy you the first drink. And I leave. Oh, I get up in the morning. I talk to Byron that night. He tells me the same. And my trailer's stolen. <laughs> I call Byron up. Now, by this time, I'm telling you, Chuck C. And Tommy Currenton was living there. Tommy C. was living next to Byron. The Upland meeting. Who knows about it? I'm in trouble. They got a newcomer that's going to the meeting to hear what's happening to me. Stayed sober. Name is Fran. I said, screw this truck. I'm never going to, I don't even want to look at it. Oh, it's terrible. I called the FBI up. <laughs> FBI said, was it loaded? I said, no. He said, we can't help you out. I said, but I'm from California. This truck is from out of state. It's a stolen out of state vehicle. He said, no load, no coming to talk to you. I called Byron up. <laughs> Back to the same thing. God damn, Byron, tell me something that Clancy's told you. Don't get too hungry. Don't get too <laughs> Don't take the first drink and call me in the morning. I said, Byron, it's so bad we're sucking the lug nuts off my tractor to keep from starving to death. I'm, I'm out of money. So I get his, I get his trailer. I leave back out $4,000 for my rear gears in uh, Chelsea. I go out walking with this John C. Junior was his name. He lived there, and he thought I was... He thought I was special because I had a year sober. I said, man, I ain't special. I'm in trouble. And uh, he takes me out to the ocean. We're standing in the ocean looking over, and this gal from Sabina 
walked over to me and said, Hi, Dick, I'm visiting my relatives. I almost fell over. Here I am 3,000 miles away from Cabina, and they sick somebody on me. I just thinking everything's happening. <laughs> I knew Book Mac did it. Start back on, get a load of book matches coming out of there, going to the casino in Reno. And I told you to get a lousy job on my engine, and very bad. Had no recourse. And I'm going down, and all of a sudden, I just lay down. I have not been sleeping good. And uh, I was listening, to, and all of a sudden, the red buzzer and the red light come on the dashboard. I'm up sitting in a doghouse, and Joe's just driving along, and the oil plug fell out of my engine because they stripped it and they figured that fell. So 11 gallons of oil later, down the interstate in Nebraska, and of course we ain't got cell phones in, I hitchhiked into the truck stop. I buy 11 gallons of oil, one oil pan plug, and walked out to the truck stop, got on the entrance to the interstate, put up my thumb, and his pickup went by me, and just skidded to a stop, put it in reverse, and burnt rubber coming back. He said, how are you doing? I, I said, good as a kid. He said, I've seen guys hitchhike with women that look like dogs. I've seen hippies hitchhike that the dogs look like the women. I have seen a lot on this interstate. He said, but I've never seen anybody hitchhike with 11 gallons of oil. I said, my truck broke down up to the road about 40 miles. He said, I'll drive you up there. That's my, that's my exit, but I'm taking you there. So the cleaning crew from the cleaning crew from Nebraska Highway are sanding the deal so there's no accident. 11 gallons of oil makes a big mess on the interstate. Put the oil pan plug in. Put the oil in. Now, this don't help the engine any either. And now I'm in the back of the bunk, and I'm coming in in the bat, and I'm getting close. A load of book matches. Now, can you ever hear your car or talk, your truck talk to you? It's saying, the stacks are saying, set me on fire, set me on fire, set me on fire. That's the only way I'm going to get even. As, as part of the insurance company. Now, how are you going to stay honest and sober if you do that? Why, all it would take would be two fuse each. One in each tank and get the hell out of there. But I got this guy with me, and I figure he'll spill the beans. If I was in by myself, we'd be talking to a different... I'd be someplace else, I guarantee you. I tell Byron all my problems. I get rid of that trigger, and I bobtail home because my trailer is still gone. That FBI agent called me up five years. Of course, I gave him some lip. I said, well, don't you dare bother look for a 42 and a half foot white utility trailer that with a motor on the front of it and a bunch of lights down the side. Because you can't find Patricia Hershey, idiot.
So five years later, I'm going to have to sit down and let Mary tell you the truth. Five years later, the same guy calls me up. He said, Mr. Morrison. I said, yeah. He said, I'm the FBI agent you talked to in Connecticut. I said, oh, you found Trevor. Yes, we did. But you have to testify because you, you could identify it. I said, I ain't going to do that. He said, Mr. Morrison, you have an attorney? I said, no, if you need to get one. He said, you need to go with me to Bangalore to testify against this guy. And I know there's no mafia in New York because I heard this speaker say there is no mafia. If there is no <laughs> If there's a truck stealing ring in Boston, Massachusetts, if there is one, yes. So, I said, I'm not going. He said, you got your choice. With me in handcuffs or with me without them. So, I, mean, I don't know yet that this is my guy I talked to. I call him, I call him an idiot. So I meet him in Chelsea, Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts. He takes care of me. They put me in under protective custody. I don't want to go. Didn't want to go. Didn't go there. Then he told me. He said, how would you like to hear your tape of what you told me that day? That... I, I said, I don't think so, sir. So I get back, get all that, and I testify against these people. And all of this gone, they, I don't know what they convicted him for, but my testimony got him there. He said, you're free to go. I said, all this protective custody for three days before I testify, and once I testify, you let me go? What kind of goddamn FBI are you? I said, get me home. Get me a bulletproof vest. So I like to be sober. Then I like to be drunk. And I'm, I'm glad to be here, and I'll let Mary share and this is what kind of guy she's got to live with. Oh, one other thing I did, and i got to tell you about it. I had to make amends. I got back in the upland, and they had a traveling group. And they were going down to Laguna Beach to the canyon club. In a participation meeting. This lady talked about her vacuum cleaner switch breaking. And then she was thought about drinking about it. <laughs> After she talked, they called on me next. <laughs> I said, Lady, you talk to God damn nice. Why don't you just suck to do it up with your mouth? <laughs> and, uh, so now I told you I got these gurus on both sides. They picked me up like this. That you have to make an amends. <laughs> I make the amends. I feel better about it. It's enough out of me, and I'll let Mary share. Thanks, Dick. Mary. Hi, everybody. My name is Mary, and I love an alcoholic. And I don't know why some days, but, <laughs> um, and that's how our life has been. It's really fun being married to a truck driver. Um, I want to thank everybody for asking us. Um, Heidi, I've known for a lot of years. She, uh, I, she, I remember when Heidi was in Alatine, and my daughter was in Alatine with her. And, and in fact, all six of our kids have gone to Alatine, and it's an important part of these programs. 
and I got the, had the privilege yesterday to sit in in a, the Alateen Marathon meeting, and I tell you, what an inspiration when you hear those kids share. And you wonder when they're 12 and 13 years old where they get that. It's amazing to me. Alateen is, is just wonderful. Um, I'm a daughter of an alcoholic, a granddaughter of an alcoholic, wife of an alcoholic. Isn't he cute? <laughs> and I am the mother of an alcoholic, and I'm truly grateful for all the alcoholics in my life, in my family, and everywhere else. Um, this program has done so much for me and for my family that I just don't know if I can ever express all the gratitude. What I'm going to do is just share... Um, what it's like today and what got me there. I, uh, several years ago, 30 years ago, uh, Richard was drinking a lot and we had a lot of problems. He wasn't this fun kind of guy, you know, I, uh, we had a lot of fights and I had always said I wouldn't marry somebody like my dad and he was a lot like my dad. And um, things weren't going very well, you know, and it was always those trucks that were the problem or them or they, it was never us, you know, we didn't see that it was our problem. Uh, anyhow, I, when he first got sober, he went and lived with this couple because I didn't want him in our house anymore. And they were called, their names were Jim and June. Well, June was in AA and she was a rough old gal. But she had gone to Al-Anon and they kept telling me, why don't you go to Al-Anon, try Al-Anon, Mary? And I said, I don't want to go to Al-Anon. You know, it's his problem, not mine. And, uh, I got so sick and tired of her asking me to go that I finally consented to go one night. And she took me to a Wednesday night meeting in Pomona, California, at the Triangle Club. And I went with her only so that she would shut up and they'd leave me alone because, it, like I said, it was his problem. And I went to that meeting and there were 30 or 40 people there. I think at that night it was all women. That's how I own I used to be. Now I'm in a couple of really great meetings and we have a lot of fellows in those meetings. People like Bill and it's wonderful. And I... Um, was sitting at this table and there was a lady across the table from me and her name was Mary too and she would become one of my best friends and she was whining through this whole meeting and I really didn't want to be there and I didn't want to hear what they were saying and they were reading out of the one day at a time book because they did a lot of that back then and um, you know and they're sharing on what's in the book and I'm thinking my god you know if I want to share something or read something inspirational I'll just read the bible not that I ever did but I you know but being a little critical. And uh, so she was sharing and she was crying because her husband had been sober a year and things were not going real well with him. And I thought, oh my God, how stupid this is. If Richard were sober a year, our whole lives would get better. And of course, you heard his truck story if he was sober almost a year. And, uh, and so um, I thought, I don't know what I'm doing here, you know. And... Um, Something happened in that meeting, and I don't know what it was. I don't even remember what the meeting was about. But I do remember that they told me there was another meeting on Friday night in Pomona and that maybe I'd like to go. And I said, oh, okay. And I did go. And I, I didn't know why I went. Today I know it was because my higher power was directing me to this program. And I went to that Friday night meeting, and there was a fellow in that meeting. His name was Elliot, one of my really good friends. And um, he was there with his wife, who was an AA. And I looked over at her and I knew her because we worked at the same hospital. And she came up to me and she said, Mary, don't tell anybody you saw me here. You know, we have to be anonymous here. And I thought, oh, my God, of course I won't tell anybody. I don't even know I'm coming to this thing. And, uh, and so that's how it started. And then they told me it might be a good idea. 
if I go to an AA speaker meeting once in a while to hear so I can relate to what's going on with the alcoholic. And so that Sunday night, I went to an AA speaker meeting at the Triangle Club. And that meeting was wonderful, you know. And I thought, you know, maybe there is something in what they're saying about this being a disease because, you know, I, these guys are saying things that Richard says all the time that I thought, you know, was just unique to him. And um, there was a lady that sat behind me that night, and her name was also Mary. And she said, Mary, there's a good meeting on Tuesday night in Claremont. Why don't you come? And I said, okay, I will. And so I went that Tuesday night. And so now it's been less than a week, and I've gone to four meetings, and I didn't want to be here, you know, because I didn't participate, and I didn't share, and I just stayed home with the five kids we had at the time. And so I went to that Tuesday night meeting in Claremont, which became my home group, and within a few minutes, uh, they were doing all their business stuff. We did the readings, and then the secretary said she needed to give up her job. She'd had it for the year. Back then, we did it for a year. Most of our meetings now do it after six months. And so they needed a volunteer. Now, there were 30 or 40 people in that room, and no one was raising their hand, you know, and it's kind of that way still. And so I raised my hand, and I thought, I can't, why am I raising my hand? I don't volunteer. And I know then, too, that that was my higher power giving me the opportunity to stay here. So I raised my hand to become secretary, and at that time you did it all. You opened the door, you put out the literature, you collected the money, you asked for a leader. And um, she said she'd show me what to do, and she did, and she gave me the key, and she said, I'll meet you next week, and I'll be here to support you, and... Um, Everything's going to be okay. And I thought, okay, I can do this. You know, it's no big deal. I don't even have to say my name to do that. I just have to show up. And so I came the next week and showed up and opened the door and waited for her to show up and waited for her. You know, that was 30 years ago, and I've never seen her since, but I'm still here. Isn't that what it's all about? You know, thank God. And so right away I, I was hooked. You know, and then I, I went to a lot of meetings and I became really involved. And um, I told the kids they had to go to Alatine. Oh, they didn't want to do that. My two oldest were 12 and 13 at the time. And I said, well, you have to go to six meetings. And they said, okay, we'll go. And um, my, now my 10-year-old, Kathy, who, who Heidi knows, really wanted to go, but the big kids didn't want her to go. And so the two of them, the two older ones went and... Um, Lori didn't like to go, she said, because they swore in the meetings. Michael didn't want to go because his sister was there, and I said, you have to go to six meetings. And so they did. And then they didn't go much after that. But Kathy kept insisting on going, and she went. And um, she still once in a while goes to a meeting, not very often. Um, but of all my kids, she probably had the most trouble and needed these meetings more than ever, and that, too, was our higher power working in our lives. And so when Kathy was 10, she went to Alateen. Now, the other ones were kind of young, the two other ones, and they, you know, I didn't think they needed anything, but they, something was happening in our family, and I don't know what it was, you know, and um, I was in that meeting, like I said, I became secretary, and a few months after that, um, Richard decided that when he went down and took a test to, for his driving test, that he wasn't an alcoholic anymore. And so he came home and announced to me that, you know, he said, I'm not an alcoholic anymore, Mary, so you don't need to go to those meetings. <laughs> uh, and he was drunk, you know. But he's not an alcoholic anymore. <laughs> so I said, Richard, that's okay. I said, I'm still going because your drinking bothers me. And, you know, we lived in a violent home. And to think that 
nothing happened and I was able to say that is a real miracle of this program because he never said you can't go or I won't let you go it was okay and I went thank God I went to those meetings because things didn't get better they got worse uh, a few months after that uh, I was working at a big hospital in Pomona and I was a supervisor and uh, one night one of the girls that worked for me on the third shift didn't show up and I had to work the third shift oh I first I have to tell you about that job because I, when I went to work at that hospital I, we really needed the money really badly and um, it was Christmas time so that's why I took the job in the emergency room and um, they said do you mind seeing blood you know I wasn't a nurse so I was just going to check people in and I said oh I can handle it well I said that because I want I needed the money I didn't think I could handle it at all and I remember the first night I was there a lot of things happened one of the things that happened is an ambulance brought a person in and they rolled them by me as they were going into the the rooms for the patients and I said boy that guy looks really bad and they said yeah Mary he's dead I said oh I guess I can handle this you know Unbeknownst to me, that very same night, Richard had gotten drunk and been picked up by the Pomona police. Well, where they do the blood alcohol test was at that hospital in that emergency room. So, um, but he refused to take the blood alcohol test, so he got to go to one of his many visits to the jail there in town. And I am so grateful that that happened, because I think if they had brought him in there that night, I'd have never stayed at that job. And it, it was really one of the most wonderful jobs I ever had. The doctor that was in charge there, um, his ex-wife had been in Alcoholics Anonymous, and when I'd get phone calls from this guy that was drinking, um, he would tell me, you know, it's okay, Mary, and, and things are going to be okay. And, of course, then after I was there a while, it's when... Uh, I was going to Al-Anon, and, uh, you know, a lot of good things happened to me there. I, I, whenever they had a drunk come in and DTs or something, they'd have me talk to them. Like, I, you know, I don't know what I was doing, but um, I, it was just a good feeling to be there and to be able to do that. Um, so Richard went back out, and, and our lives didn't become that great. But um, we had one night, like I said, we had this, um, somebody didn't show up for third shift, so it was my responsibility to go in if they didn't. So I'd worked during the day, and then I went on in on this third shift. And when I came home that morning, I was really tired, and I went to bed. And Richard had been out, but he wasn't drunk, and he wasn't sober. But he came in, and for some reason, we got into this big argument, and I had just gotten up. And it ended up in a big fight, and I ended up with two black eyes. And then I, something happened to me that day, and I don't know... Well, I do know with my higher power working in my life one more time because I said, God, I can't do this anymore. Help me. And Richard quit hitting me and left the house. And I didn't know what was going to happen to us, and I didn't know where I was at. happened to be that my mother and my dad were, my stepmother and my dad were visiting. Now, my dad wasn't there yet. He was in Vegas gambling. He was also, besides being an alcoholic, he was a compulsive gambler. But my stepmother and her couple kids, my stepsister and stepbrother, were there with her. And she said, Mary, my God, what are you going to do with these black eyes? What are you going to do when he comes back? And I said, he'll be okay when he comes back because isn't that how it is? You know, after it's over with, everything's fine again. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go to a meeting. And she said, you're going to go out looking like that? And I said, yeah, I can do that. I said, that's what I need to do for me. And my friends aren't going to feel sorry for me because they know how it is. And that's what I did do. And uh, shortly after that, Richard and I separated for a while. And uh, not very long. <laughs> uh, 
um, he got sober again, and, and you know, in between we had a few things going on. And uh, but at Christmas time, he came by and asked if he could take the two older kids to an alcathon with him at the 502 Club in Covina. And I said, "Oh, sure, they can go with you. You know, just get them back before morning because it was Christmas Eve, but they were older." And so he did do that. And when he came back. I said, you know, you might as well spend the night, because, you know, in Southern California, it's kind of cold, and I didn't want him to have to drive all the way back to Kavita. So he spent the night, and you know what? That's, um, you know, about 29 and a half years or so ago, and uh, he's still there spending the night. <laughs> uh, but, but that's how it works. You know, something changed in that time from when he had got, you know, was sober those, that first year and then went back out and and this time. And I don't know what the change was, people ask me, and I don't know, but I know it worked for us, you know, whatever it was. I think what it was mostly is I was going to this program for me, and he went to AA finally for the, for himself. Because the first time he went for the kids and I, you know, and it doesn't work that way. At least that's how I perceived it. And so um, he got sober, and he came home. And, you know, our life has been unbelievably wonderful since that time. Not to say we haven't had a lot of ups and downs. When you have five kids, you have a lot of ups and downs. Believe me, if you didn't have anything. Uh, with five teenagers all at once, it was a lot of fun. Richard was sober a little over a year, and I got pregnant again. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to tell him he'll probably drink. You know, I still wasn't sure of this thing. And I'd been in the program a couple of years. And so I told him that uh, I was pregnant. And I was real excited about it. It was really an exciting time, and we had our sixth child, Anne Marie, who's now 26 years old. And um, like I said, all the kids have gotten Alateen, and so when Anne Marie became a teenager, I didn't think she needed Alateen because, you know, Dad hadn't drank ever in her life and still hasn't, and, you know, Mom's not quite as crazy as she used to be. But one time she said to me, Mom, can I go to an Alateen meeting? And I said, yeah, I guess you can go. You know, there's no reason why you can't go. I'm going all the time, and there's always an Alateen meeting somewhere, you know, in the, with the couple of the Alateen meetings I go to. So I took her to an Alateen meeting, and then I probably took her to another one. And then a good friend of mine had two teenage daughters, and she said, well, I am going to a meeting with them. And I said, oh, sure she will. You know, and I'd ask her, and she said, yes. And that night when we were driving home, I said to her, Anne, why Why do you want to go to Alateen? You know, what's in it for you? What? You know, I don't understand why you want to go. And she said, Mom, just like all these kids here I heard yesterday, she said, Mom, I go because I can give the hope of the program to these other kids because I've never had to see my dad drink or you get quite as crazy as you used to. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, and I didn't think she needed the program, you know, and that's just been one of those awakenings that I've had. And then, you know, with six kids, it's always not... Everything isn't really smooth, you know, but it was a lot better because we were doing it together. And uh, when my son got in high school, he's the second oldest. We have one boy and five girls. When Michael got in high school, he he just wasn't fitting in too well. And one day the school called me and they said, Mrs. Morrison, we have your son under arrest. He was selling these little white pills on campus. And I said, oh, my God, it was probably aspirin, and he just wanted to make a buck. <laughs> you know, they didn't agree with me, and they took him to juvenile hall. So we went to visit him in juvenile hall. And because of my friends that had teenagers in trouble, I was able to do that. I, I wasn't sure if I could walk into that horrible place, because the juvenile hall in San Bernardino, California, is not a fun place. 
you know, they check you out and they make sure you don't have anything with you, knives, guns, and then you're standing in this row with these people that, you know, on my best day I wouldn't want to be near, on my worst day. And um, Richard said to the fellow that was there checking us in, he said, you know, if you leave me in the room with my son, I will find out what he really was doing and where this came from. And the fellow said, Mr. Morrison, your son has rights and you can't do that. And, you know, that was an awakening, too, that we had to let go of our kids. And we learned that through Mike because they're persons, too. They're not just our responsibility. You know, they are maybe when they're little. But we had to learn there's a point and a place where we have to let go of them, and we were able to do that. And so that was the time we visited Mike in San Bernardino. And on the way home to Upland from San Bernardino, I just kind of was thinking to myself, because he is our only son, like I said, you know, what's happened to my little boy? You know, why is he in juvenile home? And I, I didn't have an answer. And then I had to think about the other kids because they'd not been in any trouble. And then I realized that, you know, he's just an individual, and that's the path he chose. And the path he chose went on for a long time. Mike ended up in Chino Prison a couple times just for short visits. I One time was because he stole a styrofoam ice chest. And then another time, uh, you know, for whatever reason. And then a couple years later, you know, by now we've been in the program about 10 years. And uh, a couple years later, uh, Michael called us from jail one time. And they had a warrant out. And they found him. And... Um, he said, I need to get out of jail, Mom. It's going to be my birthday, I think, the next day or something. And I, I, he said, can you bail me out? And I said, I don't know. You have to talk to your dad because I couldn't be the only answer for him. And, you know, it's tearing my heart out because there's my little boy one more time in jail and probably going to prison. And the reason for that was he had this friend, and the friend asked Mike to drive him by the bank to go get some money. Well, the only problem was, yeah, you got it, it wasn't his money. And it was uh, Michael's car was a getaway car. Now, that's pretty stupid because that's the one they come after is him, you know. Um, so he went to prison. And um, we just thought probably that Mike would always end up in prison. And through the years, his sister Kathy especially had taken him to young AA meetings and dances and, you know, we tried allergene and nothing seemed to work. And when Mike was in prison, I said, Michael, why don't you go to those AA meetings that come into the prison? At least that way you get to talk to somebody on the outside, you know, and you get donuts and coffee. And he just kind of looked at me and thought, I, you know, maybe, he said. And I thought, yeah, that's it. He probably isn't going to because this is probably going to be a way of life for him because that's pretty much what we had decided. So after a year or so, almost two years, Mike uh, was transferred to a fire camp in Saugus, California. And while he was there, I went to see him just before he got out. And uh, he said, Mom, I'm seeing this guy every Sunday. He comes up and he does a meeting and his name's Bill. Kind of ironic, you know, his name was Bill. And I said, oh, that's nice, Mike. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good. At least he's talking to him, you know, and nothing's going to happen. And he's going to be out in a few weeks. Well, he did get out a, a couple weeks after that, and he went to a halfway house in Garden Grove. And the first call he made was not to Mom and Dad like we thought. The first call was to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, my son's been sober almost 13 years, and that's a real miracle of this program. You know, I uh, go to a Tuesday night meeting in Riverside, and my friend Steve goes there. He's such a great guy. And a couple of weeks ago, he led our meeting, and he talked about 
how he got into Al-Anon was he was sitting in a restaurant and these women were talking about their sons, how wonderful they were doing and they were doing this. And, and he's like, excuse me, I couldn't help but hear your conversation. What university do your sons go to? And um, it was someone who's in Al-Anon, not me. And they, they said, well, our sons are in prison. And... Uh, <laughs> So Steve related that at the meeting a couple of weeks ago, and he says, you know, all you convict moms, moms saved my life. And I, so then I got to share with me a little later, and I said, I'm one of those convict moms, too. And, you know, it's kind of fun. It's fun to be able to do that. When Richard was sober five years, we had a big party at our house in Upland for him, and a couple of my own friends and I got there a little early, and we blacked my eyes, you know. This was a show him. And so we did that. <laughs> and he came in the door and he says, you got the coffee going, you got this going. I said, everything's fine. And I'm walking around with these black eyes and he's not paying any attention. So then some of his buddies came in and they said, oh, look at this. Chick doesn't even notice when she's got black eyes. And, you know, we all laughed. And isn't that what this program's about? What a healing process that we could laugh about the seemingly bad and, and be okay with it. Uh, I just want one more story to tell you because it's important to me. <sighs> Uh, and my kids all grew up and they're wonderful. We've all gone to college. Uh, I have a daughter that's gone to law school and Michael went back to college and he's the director of a computer software company, my convict son. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, all the kids have done real well. Uh, and they're all real close and they come over and see us all the time. And, and that's really great. And my youngest, Anne, is getting married this year and uh, that's a big deal because that means I'm really old because now she's a lot younger than the rest of them. But I just want to tell you about um, something that happened to us five years ago. <clears throat> it was always, like I said, been close. And uh, my daughter, Becky, had a baby. And um, and then she got pregnant and had her second baby. And now you got to remember, my kids all went to Alateen, and they shared a lot and spoke a lot with us sometimes. And anyway, Becky had the second baby. And thank you. And um, she stayed home within three months. And she went to work on, on a Friday morning. Now, my daughter Kathy works where I worked. I just retired last year. But uh, Kathy and I got a phone call. And it was from Becky. And she said, they've taken the baby to the hospital. Come to the hospital. And, um, you know, you just have that gut feeling that something's not right. And uh, so Kathy drove me to the hospital because she was there at work with me. And when we got there, I knew the baby had died. And it was a very... Uh, it was very difficult. You know, I thought it was difficult when Michael was in, in prison, but it, it's nothing like losing a part of you. And uh, and Becky didn't realize that the baby was gone, but I worked in an emergency room, and I know when they put you in that little room with the family by themselves, I knew what was going on. And then she wanted to see him when they finally told her, and we called the priest, and he came. Uh, they wouldn't let her hold him, you know, because... They have to check out for child abuse and all those things that the police do. And uh, it was a very difficult time. And, I, you know, I didn't know if we were going to get over it. But because of our friends in these programs, you know, they supported us and they came and they helped and they came to the funeral. And we were able to get through that. And, you know, the day after the funeral, Richard and I had to give a talk. And I went and gave a talk and I shared about the baby because that's what you've all taught me to do is share when I'm hurting. And I shared about him. And when I did, afterwards, a lady came up to me that they had a baby die from SIDS, too, and she'd never told anybody before. And I thought, oh, my God, if I hadn't shared that, she's been carrying that inside of her all this time. 
And then another lady came up and she asked me if my daughter's name was Becky. And I said, yes, she was. Now, we're in a town far away from where we live. And I said, yes, her name is Becky. And she said, I know your daughter. I talk to her on the phone all the time. And we're friends through work. And I thought, isn't that a miracle? I went to this little town. It's like Elsinore in California where I didn't know many people. And there was only probably about 12 people in the room that night. But there we did. We got to relate one-on-one with two people about this tragedy that happened to us that has made us stronger. You know, I've heard speakers speak this weekend about, you know, staying in the now. And that's what I have to do. And, and, and knowing that things maybe don't happen for a, for a good reason, but they are part of life and we have to live through life. And, and that's what my life has been like. It's been wonderful. It's been a great trip, and I never would change it for anything. You know, if I had taken down a few, 30 years ago when I got here in January and wrote down a list of what I wanted, it had been a new house and a new car and new jewelry. And, you know, I've been very fortunate. We, I've gotten a lot of those things. We have an old house that we fixed up. But I didn't know what was really important 30 years ago. Today I know what's important. It's the serenity and peace of this program, and most of all, it's the hope of this program that you too can have if you just keep coming back. Thank you. Thank you, Mary.